0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of
1: Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well,
0: let's bow for a word of prayer. And ask the Lord if He would bless our time together in His Word. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before You this evening and delighted to be here because we're going to be listening to You from Your written Word, Your Holy Scriptures. And Father, we ask that You would remove from our minds, uh, and, and really, especially mind, uh, what took place today and earlier this week, and what will take place tomorrow, and Friday and help us to just clear our minds and have them open to hearing from the Holy Spirit as your word goes forth here this evening. I ask that you would bless that and bless each of us and help us to embrace what we're going to hear and what we're going to read and allow it to be a part of our lives where it'll keep us uh, that much more in love with you, Father. Our salvation, it's a magnificent gift. There is no greater gift. Well, it'll be fantastic to understand how it all came about. And uh, as we do so, we're going to see what you have done on our behalf. We thank you now and ask that uh, this would really be a special evening. We pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. A couple of things I just want to touch on real quick. Last week, Jason asked a question when we went to Acts 17.11, and Scripture says that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily. Jason said, Brian, is were the Scriptures the Old Testament only? Was it the New Testament? What Scriptures was uh, Paul talking about? From what I can discern, Paul was talking about the Old Testament. Because in that first century church, I don't believe that the canon of scripture was compiled as of yet. The letters were in circulation, and uh, I don't believe that uh, they had the actual written New Testament at that time. So I believe it was Old Testament. Jeff asked a great question. In fact, it, it, it was a fantastic question, and we're going to look at a couple things real quick. Jeff said, was not the gospel being proclaimed in the Old Testament? Accurate? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the answer was yes, and I thought, you know what, let's go take a peek at that. Let's spend just a couple minutes, and let's drop back and look at where the gospel, slightly veiled, but gospel is being clearly proclaimed in the Old Testament. Jump over uh, to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, would you please? Leviticus chapter 17. And I'll bet you're thinking Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17 verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11. Everybody there? Great. Scripture says, And whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats my blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. Now listen carefully to this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Obviously pointing to the gospel. Slightly veiled, yes, but you can clearly see the denoting of the gospel there. Turn over to Psalm 2, please, and I think all of you are going to recognize this one. Psalm 2. And as you're turning there, there's other places. Other places, I just chose the ones that I chose because I felt that they were pretty clear. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, 9, and 12. Verse 6 Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Verse 9 You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel verse 12 kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are those who put their catch this, trust in him isn't that beautiful okay one that you all know very well and i don't think we can read this one enough isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah chapter fifty three. Come in, you two. Good evening. Good to have you. Familiar to all of us. Let's read the entire chapter. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our inequities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that beautiful? I don't think we could pick anything clearer than Isaiah 53. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is known as the New Covenant. We'll pick it up in verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their inequity and their sin. I will remember no more. Beautiful, beautiful example of the gospel. I just want to show you one more and then we'll get to our actual lesson plan. Turn over, please, to... Zachariah. Zachariah chapter 12. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 through 11a. Verse 10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And indeed there was. That's beautiful. It was exciting for me, to be honest, to take Jeff's question, recognize what he said was true, and then go do a little research myself this week and uh, give you a couple examples of the gospel being preached in uh, the Old Testament. You can, always. Jeff's question came by the result of your mention. I think it was in Matthew that this was the first
1: presentation which prompted Jeff's question? Yes. Would it be correct to say when we talk about the gospel, we as Christians are looking at what gets presented to Gentiles and Jews alike to everybody onto salvation, which I think could be a little bit different than, yes, there is salvation presented in the Old Testament, but to what he was talking to the Jews. So perhaps both are right. We see him... God prophesying that there will come a Messiah. Correct. But the first mention of the gospel that we think of as being presented to everybody.
0: Correct. You're right on track. I said to you last week that in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ was the first in the New Testament to present the doctrines of grace through the gospel. Now, truthfully, the gospel was preached for the first time. I've had a hard time seeing it, but I'll tell you where it is. And before I do, does anybody know what theologians and scholars believe the first time the gospel presentation in the Old Testament, where it's from? Yep. Do you know what verse? You're right on track. You are right on track. 315. Let's go there real quick. I've never been able to see it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I, I know exactly who they're speaking of. I, I just didn't see the gospel in that. Maybe I'm blind, and I need to look at that and and uh, just give that up. Jeff, you look like you were getting ready to say something. Yeah. Mention yeah. of it in that form. Yeah. And that seed promise extends right through. Right through, yeah. Christ. It does. But it's not, you know, obviously not developed like it is progressive with Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Great question. I just
1: want you say he's speaking to the serpent.
0: Yeah. 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 He's telling Satan you're you're doomed. And then the first thing you brought up, you want to know if MacArthur said they looked at the scrolls. They looked at the scrolls? Okay. Okay. Um, real quickly, a couple of other things. What we're going to be doing here for the next several weeks is, yes, we're looking at deep doctrine. We're looking at theology, deep theology. But I want you to understand that theology really is the study of God. And so when we look at Scripture and we study Scripture as a whole, we're studying God. Now, what we're actually doing here is we are studying soteriology, the study of salvation. Christiology is the study of Christ. Anthropology is the study of man. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. So what we're doing in the doctrines of grace is really we are studying soteriology. How? How? Are we saved? So keep that in mind as we continue every single week. We are studying soteriology, big word, salvation. So with that, we're starting tonight. I told you last week I'm doing something, and I'm kind of chuckling because it is really backwards. Most uh, pastors, teachers, theologians, scholars... If they are going to teach on the doctrines of grace, they're going to start with total depravity and work their way through the acronym we talked about last week called TULIP. In 2009, 2008, somewhere in there, uh, Faith Bible Church in Libby, Montana asked me, their elders, would I please do a series on eternal security they had a gentleman that was in the church and he was a a well-known man very respected outspoken man and uh he believed you could lose your salvation and was very vocal about that and over the years the elders trying to rein him in and trying to get him to to understand scripture um it was difficult for him and so they asked me would you do it i said i would love to do it and i started through the uh Perseverance of the Saints, and when we got done, we ended up going all the way through the doctrines of grace. So I started from the back end working forward. I, it was successful. And and so I thought I'm going to do it again. So bear with me. There is a method to my ma- madness. I hope that I can do it in a manner that uh, you will, at the end of it, truly understand these doctrines of grace to the ability our fine might, finite minds can. So with that, the perseverance of the saints, I gave you an outline, and Jeremiah thirty-one three says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, that's God speaking to not only Jeremiah, but to the nation of Israel. Now, I want to ask you something. What do you believe is everlasting love? No trick question, just... He says what was that it lasts forever it's permanent it doesn't cease it goes on and on and on and on by the way (coughs) excuse me that everlasting love for god's elect past present future our salvation past present future So when when scripture says everlasting, it means everlasting. When scripture says I give you eternal life, it is eternal. Now I chose Jeremiah because everybody forgets that beautiful verse. So I started with that. Then also I decided I want to give you a little definition. And I felt that the best definition ever written was the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, that's a personal opinion, but I think it really does a great job. Now, granted, it's written in Old English, but I think that we can really grasp what this is saying. So join with me. Let's look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, The Perseverance of the Saints, point one. They, believers, Christians, they whom God has accepted in his beloved. Time out. Do you guys catch that? Accepted. I was talking, I'm not sure, I think it was Garrett Sunday. We all use a term. And you hear it all the time. Lori Wood accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Brian Wood accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. We all use it. I think it's a bad term. L- I, I want to say this, none of us, none of us accepted Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter, that, and you'll see this, Jesus Christ accepted us. Now we use it. I prefer to say that Lori would embrace Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, or Or Nate received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Much better than accepted. The the one doing the accepting is God accepted us in Christ Jesus the Lord. The great Puritan men that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith got it right. Look what they say. They whom God has accepted in his beloved. We were effectually called. And then we were sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. There's that word. Point number two. This perseverance of the saints depends upon their own free will. It doesn't say that, does it? Look what it says. And we will support this with Scripture. This perseverance of the saint depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election. Stop there. What is that big word, immutability? Anybody know? Can't change. Can't change. But, okay, and who can't change, Jan? God can't change. We're gonna prove that in one minute. She's right. The immune, the unchangeable decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God. Boy, that's pretty clear. Again, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna flesh this out with scripture. It continues upon the efficacy of the merit of And intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also certainty and infallibility thereof. Point number three. Nevertheless, they may... Through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their perser- preservation, excuse me, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein. Whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their conscience wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporary judgment upon themselves. Now, I think the men that penned this, the greatest minds at one time in the church who spent Tremendous hours together flushing out this great decree we're studying Scripture. They didn't willy-nilly write this. They supported it with God's Word. So let's begin the study of the doctrines of grace, uh, the perseverance of the saints. Excuse me. Now I said to you, I'm going to begin our survey, our study of the doctrines of grace with a study of the historical doctrine of the early church, the perseverance of the saints. Now, I chose to begin our study with the perseverance because all other doctrines of salvation stand or fall on this doctrine. Let me repeat that. All the other doctrines of salvation stand, or fall on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of justification, and of course the doctrine of sanctification along with the doctrine of glorification together. All these doctrines of grace, all of them, would be called into question if there was no eternality of salvation. Now, think about that for just a second. What I said all of the doctrines of grace would be called into question if there was no eternality of salvation. That would mean the doctrine of election would not hold up, it would fall like a house of cards if we did not have an eternal security in our salvation. This doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in modern times has been called eternal security. Now, I'm going to use it, and I don't like it, but it's used. We all use it. It's okay. It works. But I really do like what they titled it years back. Now, in essence, the doctrine teaches that if you have saving faith you'll never lose it. That's the essence of the teaching. Now, maybe you've heard it said, and I I think you have, that once saved, always saved. You all heard that? Once saved, always saved. Well, that's true. That is a true statement. But the doctrine of the perseverance does not rest on our ability to persevere. Though we will, It doesn't rest on that, but rather it rests on the promises of God to preserve us. Now let me show you one of the most beautiful verses in the scriptures. Go to Philippians chapter one, verse six. We we, we probably don't even need to go there. I think all of us could quote it. And because this verse is so magnificent to me, I'm going to pick it up in verse 3, because I just love how Paul lays this out. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, the great apostle Paul said this, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel, catch that, from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is making an absolute fabulous statement right out of the gates to this letter, in this letter to the Philippians. He loved the Philippian church. They were dear to his heart, and he says to them that he is confident, notice the verbiage he's using, confident of this very thing, that God who has begun a good work in you, your salvation, he will complete it. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to stop for a minute because immediately I think of our our wonderful Arminian friends who believe that you can lose your salvation. And I think to myself, how can they take that statement after reading that if if paul says what god has begun god will complete did paul lie absolutely not so when people take the position that you can lose your salvation they are denying they won't tell you they're denying it but they imply it they're denying scripture and as we go through just the Gospel of John tonight, they would have to take Philippians, Romans, Thessalonians, First Peter, Gospel of John, throw it out, disregard it. I've never understood that, and I, and I can't wrap my pea brain around how can they ever conclude I could lose something so valuable and precious to God. Was it Terry Clark who sings that great chorus? He who began a good work in you. You guys know it? Do you know it? Oh, I'll have to get it for you. Oh, man. Yeah, you don't want me singing it. Yeah. It's based on Philippians 1 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Amen. Okay. Friends, I want to bring this back to your attention. Paul was confident, confident that God through Jesus Christ would preserve him until the day of his glorification. He believed that beyond a shadow of a doubt. If he didn't, he's calling into question God's promise. Shame on anybody that would do that. Paul believed in the eternality of his salvation because his salvation was being preserved by him in Christ. Paul wasn't preserving himself. God was. So friends, I prefer to title this historical doctrine The Preservation of the Saints. I'm kind of just kind of putting a little spin on it. Instead of the preservation of the saints, I mean the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints. Why? Because we're being preserved. All of us are sitting in this room tonight. We are being preserved for eternity. That just makes me just, wow. Yet it is true that the genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will persevere in the faith until the end. It's true. He will. Thus, it was rightly titled by the man who penned it, The Perseverance of the Saints. Now, I can give you a little history. In the year 1644, at the famous church, the Westminster Abbey in London, England, The men present were some of the greatest biblical scholars, theological minds, ministers of the United Kingdom at that time. It was a great time in the United Kingdom. Men like John Owens, Thomas Matten, Richard Baxter, John Usher, James Goodwin, Jeremiah Burroughs, and others. The great Puritans, the lovers of God and the lovers of God's word. In fact, I have a a library filled with these men. I read them all the time. I'll tell you what I admire the most about them. Not only their passionate love for Christ and the passionate love for the word of God, but all that was carried out in their commerce. It It wasn't something they put on Sunday morning at church. They lived and breathed. Everything they did, community, commerce, everything in their lives was an affection for Christ and the word of God. And they lived that. The Puritans, great time in the history of the church. Now, their purpose was to study the scriptures and pen a Christian creed, a statement of doctrine that outlined the teachings of scripture. And under the title, The perseverance of the saints, we find this declaration. We've already read it. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Loved ones, they were correct. Those men were correct. They were correct to recognize that no true believer, notice that what I said, no true believer can totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. Impossible. Now, this is supported by many, many scriptures. And the men who penned this declaration didn't have to look far to support their statement with scriptures. So turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, where the doctrines of grace, once again, were first introduced in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as you turn to the Gospel of John, please take note to all the references to the eternality of the believer clearly taught by Christ. John chapter 3. Verse sixteen. I don't even think we need to go there. Can anybody? Would somebody quote it? John three sixteen. Have what life? Eternal. Is eternal everlasting? Yes. Is that clear? <laughs> We we should be able to close our Bibles and say, it's clear. I mean, how much more evidence do we need? we got a lot more. John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Everlasting eternal life never ever to end. Permanent. That's pretty clear, isn't it? There's nothing ambiguous about that statement, is it? Turn over to John chapter 5, verse 24. And I think as you're turning there, doesn't your outline, doesn't your outline, yeah, I've listed them all in your outline, scripture references. So you can go back and look at them. John chapter 5, verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Has is in the present tense. You know what that means? He already has it. By the way, the present tense, I always stress it. It goes on and on and on and on and on. It's not, it, 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 it's purposely chosen by the Lord to use that present tense in that Greek language. He wanted to stress something that is absolute, and he chose those words specifically and wisely. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40. Very familiar passage. By the way, how many were here when Jim preached through the Gospel of John? Some of it? Yeah. Oh, he did a magnificent job. When uh, I, I think Lori and I, for most of it, were, were gone. We were at um, Sandpoint Bible Fellowship. When Jim preached these passages, whew, powerful. Jim made it so clear to the listener, to the body of Christ, what the Lord was stating and and making so absolutely true. It was magnificent. Uh, I think you could go and listen to it online, I believe. Can you, Josh? Yeah, I thought that was the case. So if you want to hear how Jim dealt with these passages, I'd highly recommend it. It was fantastic. So verse 37 None that the Father gives me will come to me. Mine says all. Does all mean all? Does does all mean everyone? That means everyone that the Father gave him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the ones who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose none, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I, I have nothing to say. It's so clear, isn't it? All oh, that the Father gives the Son will have everlasting life. He won't lose one of them. It's impossible. Now, let's play the scenario that our, our, our brothers in Christ, our Armenian friends, if we could lose our salvation, then Jesus just lied. Right? Now, do you think they'd ever say that? Of course not. But the implication's there. If what the Lord just said here is true, but you're going to lose your salvation down the line, and the possibility exists, then what Jesus just said over here is not true. You might as well forget that. I have a good friend, Baptist, born, born, raised, and bred Baptist. He believes that the perseverance of the saints, when denied, is heretical. That's how much he believes in it. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I understand his position. It is so blessed to me to know that I can't mess this up. Now, I want to say this. The eternality of the believer in Jesus Christ is not a license to sin against God. What, what what I'm hoping again at the end of all of this is that you'll get on your knees and worship him like never before. John chapter six, we're still there. Let's go to 47 and, through 58. Now in, in verse 47 in the New King James, Jesus says, most assuredly, what that really means is without exception. So without exception, I say to you, he who believes in me, there it is again, present tense, has, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Boy, that is so clear, isn't it? He will live forever. I lost my place. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, or again, without exception, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, here it is, notice the word, has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate, the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread, look what he says again. He repeats it, lives forever. Let's go home it's so clear forever how long's forever forever he lives forever another very familiar passage to john ten isn't this magnificent isn't it refreshing to know that your salvation is eternal. Isn't that refreshing? John chapter 10. I love this passage. Verse 27. 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. (laughs) Oh, I love it. It just warms my soul and warms my heart. No one, no one can snatch us away from the Father and the Son. John chapter 11 That's correct. You are absolutely right, Garrett. Yeah, Garrett, you could not commit a big enough sin to lose what Christ has done for you. Impossible. Well, wait a minute, Brian, what if I murdered? I'm not telling you about murder. But that is covered by the blood of the lamb. For eternity. By the way, I know a man who committed every conceivable sin against God, and he's in heaven right now. You guys know him. Every single sin there was to commit against the Father, he committed it. You guys know what I'm talking about? David. David. Oh, David. King of Israel? Didn't want to go to war? He stayed home that spring. Slept in, was lazy, gets out of bed, goes up on his rooftop, finds himself lusting. Should have been off to war like all the other kings. Should have been out battling his enemies with his men. No, he's the king of Israel. He stayed home. From lust to murder. He disregarded his father, his mother. Pride. That's his sin. But because of one sin, pride, he fell headstrong. By the way, what did God say about him? Why is that?
1: that? Isn't
0: that amazing? Yeah. A man after God's own heart. Because he repented and confessed of his sin and he embraced God the Father. He wasn't. He's in heaven, by the way, for eternity. John chapter uh, 11, 25 and 26. Oh, I love it. I just love this. How much better can this get? Coming from the lips of our Savior. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. (laughs) Morning, or evening, Jason. Oh, goodness, folks. He will never die. How, how in the world could we ever miss that? I, I just, I don't know. Let's read it again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die spiritually. Do you believe this? I do. Do you? Yes. Yes, we believe this. It's coming from the lips of our Savior. He's making it so clear. It's just impossible to conclude anything else. John chapter 12, verse 25 and 26 again. 30 pages turning chapter 12 of john 25 and 26 he who loves his life will lose it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for how long what does yours say life eternal life eternal, life eternal. He will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. By the way, where did Jesus go? John 14, he told us. He said, I went, I'm going to what? Prepare a place for you, right? And where I go, you're going to go with me, right? So let me ask you something, is he going to go prepare a place for us and then come back and take us to that place and then kick us out, cast us away? No, we're going to be in that place with him forever, heaven, forever, eternally. Forever. Forever means forever. I go and prepare a place for you. And where I go, you will be there with me. John eighteen nine. It just warms my heart over and over and over again to hear these words from my blessed Savior. Verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might fulfill which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. (laughs) He's lost none. All of us in this room tonight, God the Father gave us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give us back to the Father as a love gift back so that we can spend eternity with Him forever. And every single one that the Father's given the Son, He lost none. None. Now, if you're thinking just by chance, what about Judas? Did anybody go there yet? What about Judas? Did you? We're going to talk about Judas next week. I think uh, next week. Got to wait one, one more week. Beloved, Jesus' words most assuredly, as I already said to you, means without exception. So without exception, saving faith cannot fail. Cannot. Why? Why? Because saving faith is a divine gift of God. Critical. It's a divine gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Therefore, persevering faith is also a divine power of God. None of us in this room are preserving ourselves. God's preserving us. It's a divine work and power of God that we are preserved. If preservation is a human effort, it would fail. If it were up to me, I would lose my salvation every day ask Lori I don't think I'm the only husband in the room though that a wife might say that about huh not every day, not every day? That she knows you. yeah every other day Maybe she didn't say that twice on Sunday. after 44 years she knows me Friends, the preservation, the preservation of the saints, again, is the divine power of the triune God. I'm, I, I'm going to read you something. I'm not really a big fan of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, don't read much of him. Is he a philosopher? Is Francis Schaefer a philosopher? C.S. Lewis, is he a philosopher? F- Philosopher? Uh, I don't know. You wouldn't consider no. Francis Schaeffer was okay. A reformed pastor. Oh, great! I might start reading him. Though. This is really good. <laughs> oh goodness, see, see why I need to be preserved. Another, he said this, quote, another important aspect of saving, excuse me, of having eternal life is that it is the ground for eternal security. Although some have taught that eternal life can be lost and that a person once saved can be lost if he defects from the faith, the very nature of eternal life and the new birth forbids a reversal of this work of God. It is first of all a work of God and not a man, not dependent on human worthiness. I like that. While faith is necessary, faith is not considered a good work which deserves salvation, but rather is is opening the channel through which God may work in the individual. As natural birth cannot be reversed, so spiritual birth cannot be reversed. Once affected, it assures the believer that God will always be his heavenly father, end of quote. He's right. Now, I know people who say, I wish I was never born. You can't reverse physical birth. You cannot reverse spiritual rebirth. If you are regenerated by Jesus Christ, you cannot reverse that regeneration. And that regeneration guarantees you are sealed for eternity. No ifs and buts about it. So friends, our salvation is, yes, eternal. And that's why it is so important of a component. In fact, possibly the most important link in the chain. Of salvation, the eternality of your salvation, break that link, deny that link, then your salvation is no longer eternal. But that would be a distortion of Scripture. We see that right here tonight. If that link could be broken, we would have to distort Scripture to come to that conclusion. Jesus Christ clearly established that the eternality of your salvation is indeed eternal forever. You cannot have eternal life that is not eternal. So I'll say it again. The idea that salvation can be lost is an absolute distortion of Scripture. You are contorting God's Word to conclude that. May that never be. Any idea that leaves out the preservation... Notice the word I keep using. The preservation of the saints is a distortion of Scripture also. We can't escape it. Now, I want to turn somewhere, and it might be a little surprising where I'm going to turn, but I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are going to look at verses 1 through 9. And we're really going to look closely at these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1 through verse 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through his own will. And Sothenus, our brother, the same. Does your Bible say that? It doesn't, does it? Babe, what does your Bible say? There you go. Stop there for a minute, folks. Did you catch that? Paul was called to be an apostle by who? By God. Paul didn't call himself. Paul didn't elect himself. Paul didn't put himself in that position. Paul didn't lobby for that position. Paul was called. He was chosen by God to be an apostle, to be a spokesman for God. And it was done through the will of God. Now, here's who, it, too. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, meaning set apart in Christ Jesus. Notice what it says next. Also, they were called to be saints with all who are in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was what? Given. Given to you by Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, friends, what we just read, I want to bring to your attention. It's a specific word, confirmed you see that word, confirmed? Verse 8, who was also confirmed? The word confirmed is used here in the verb form denoting something critical. It's the action of someone else. It's the action of another. The word literally means this. You're going to like it. Confirmed literally means to make secure. You were confirmed. You were made secure. God is the action to make secure all believers, to make them eternally secure. Now, I said to you earlier that all the doctrines of grace stand or fall with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So it's critical that we really understand what Paul's saying here tonight. Look once again at at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Look at verse 1. I'm going to flush this out now. Paul called to be an apostle. That's the doctrine of election realized at the time of Paul's calling. Okay? Very important very important. By the way, again, as we're done here, if the perseverance or preservations of the saints is not true, then everything we're looking at falls like a house of cards. The doctrines of grace stand or fall with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So verse one, Paul called to be an apostle. That's the doctrine of election realized in time at Paul's calling. Notice the next phrase in verse one, We already talked about this, through the will of God. That's the doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination. Notice verse 2. To those who are sanctified, set apart in Christ. That's the doctrine of sanctification. Look again at verse 2. Called to be saints. That's the doctrine of election once again. Realized at their time of calling. Look at verse 4. Let me stop for just a minute. I said to you that was the doctrine of election and that that was the calling at that time. And here's why I'm saying that. All of us were elected before the foundation of the world. So before God ever created anything, he knew us he foreknew, predestined, and elected us and called us to be his children, to be believers, Christians. The election took place in eternity past. In real time, each one of us was called by God. And Paul's making that very clear to the Corinthian church. We see the election time passed, in real time, now God's calling. So, verse 2, called to be saints. The doctrine of election, again, realized at the time of their calling. Verse 4, for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of predestination, again. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end. That's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints and yet notice paul's emphasis of the security of the saints in verse 9 look at how he's emphasizing it he doesn't want them to miss it verse 9 god is faithful by whom you were called he was going to make sure that the corinthians had no doubt on why they're going to persevere because it was god who called them to persevere, to be saved eternally. You see, Paul wanted the reader to have no misunderstanding whatsoever that the believer's eternality of his salvation, this is the word I'm using, was secured, confirmed, confirmed or secured by God who is faithful by whom you were called. Now take away that security and all the other doctors of grace fall like a house of cards. Take away the eternality of that believer. Everything Paul said ahead of that all falls. It has nothing to stand on. There's no foundation. Loved ones, can you clearly see that Scripture teaches that the true believer who has been accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved can you see it do you see do you see the accuracy of that Westminster confession of faith when it starts speaking about the perseverance of the saints You see the accuracy? You see it's accurate because those men, when they got together, my understanding was it took a couple of years to put together that great confession. You know what they spent their time doing? Searching the scriptures. Those men together sat and studied God's word. The same thing we're doing right here. And at the end of that study, they were so in love with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for the eternality of their salvation that they were able to pen such a great confession of faith based on God's Word. I hope that we do the same here. I hope that when we're done again that we fall in love with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because I said to you last week that our salvation is all of God solely him fully him and holy him he gets all the credit now I just turned to my notes I'm smiling I love this go back to John's gospel chapter 14 please I got ahead of myself here tonight I didn't remember I had this in our study John chapter 14 verses 1 through 4 let these magnificent words soothe your soul our Lord says let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Did you hear that? I will come again. Well, what's he coming for? Here it is. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also and where I go you know and the way you know beloved every man and woman that has ever been born onto this earth and has embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior his salvation is eternal no matter what season of his life he might find himself disobedient to God, he will repent, he will confess those sins, and he will turn back to God the Father. You know why? Because God the Father and God the Son are holding us in their hands, and nobody, nobody can take us out of their hands. Does that mean I can't step out of his hands, Brian? Nope. Folks, he's holding on to you with a death grip, never to let go. The Lord Jesus Christ was not going to die that gruesome death on that cross and lose anyone that belonged to him. He promised. Now, Jan, we talked about the immutability of God. And remind us, what does the immutability of God mean? He's unchangeable, isn't he? Look back on your outline of the confession of faith. Jan, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, you're right. We're going to look at that. In the second point of the Westminster Confession of Faith regarding the perseverance of the saints, those great men wrote this. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Great words. It's based on the immutability of God. Well, I want to show you what Scripture says about that very subject. I think it's critical. Turn back to the Old Testament book, Malachi, just before Matthew's Gospel. Malachi, Chapter Three, Verse Six. Everybody there? Malachi, Chapter Three, Verse Six. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Well, what does that mean when it comes to the perseverance of the saints? If God told you he's going to keep you, he's going to keep you. He doesn't change. God can't change. He can't lie, folks. It's impossible. It's impossible for the character of God to ever change or lie. He's not man. Turn back to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, please. Uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, please. everybody there look what Moses penned he says God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said it will he not do or has he spoken and will not make it good Certainly he will make it good. It's his character. So if you're going to call into question the eternality of your salvation, you're going to call into question God's truthfulness. You're going to call into question the immutability of God. He's not man. God's not a man. He's an infinite being, all-powerful, in whom there is no darkness at all. God's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Absolutely. My favorite book. Anybody know what my favorite book might be? Except Laurie, don't you? You can't say. All of them. Romans. Love Romans, but I love John too. Romans chapter 11, please. While you're turning there, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, we're going to look at that. In the book of Romans, when Paul got to the sovereignty of God, a man who really understood the sovereignty of God, it took him three chapters, three chapters to prove the def- def- I can't I'm a hard time pronouncing that word. I'm gonna skip by that word. He spent three chapters proving without a shadow of a doubt the sovereignty of God in the salvation of the elect. Okay. Three chapters to defend the sovereignty of God in the election of the believer. And he gets almost to the end and he says this in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Beloved. When God chose us before the foundation of the world, when he foreknew, predestined or preordained, when he foreordained, and when he elected and then in real time called us, it was not to lose us. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light for salvation. And by no means did he do all of that with the intent of losing anyone. And if you were to call into question the eternality of your salvation, then you're calling into question every single thing that God did, every component of your salvation, you're calling out God on it. May it never be. Our salvation is eternal and forever. And the entirety of the chain of salvation is based on that doctrine. our salvation would fall, as I've said to you, like a house of cards if it were not true. Let not your heart be troubled. Be rejoicing. Be excited. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said, because where Christ goes, he will come again and receive you to himself that where he is, there you will be also. Rejoice in that. There's no gloom in that. There is nothing but excitement and enthusiasm to know that when we breathe our last breath, the finality of the eternality of your salvation will be affixed. Come, Lord Jesus, come or take me home. If you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've placed your trust in him for your salvation from sins, eternal life awaits you never to be lost. Because in the chain of salvation rests the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's why Jesus' half-brother Jude has an anthem of praise to Christ found at the end of his epistle. Let's go to Jude. Wait till we close with this verse. For years I used to say, could I invite you please to go to Jude chapter 1? Oh, there's only one chapter. (laughs) Jude chapter 1. And uh, silly me. I believe it's verse 24, 25. 24. Yes, 24. It's an anthem of praise to Christ found at the end of his half-brother's epistle. Jude said this. It's a great doxology. Now to him, now to him who is able to keep you. Stop there. Folks, who's keeping who here? Who who, is doing the keeping? Jude says, now to him. You see, if you're keeping yourself, you're going to lose it. I told you, I lose mine every day if I'm going to lose it. But I'm not keeping myself. I can't. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you, look what it says, faultless before the presence of His glory with exceedingly joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You see, the whole perspective of this is to understand it is the perseverance of the saints. We all in this room are going to persevere. We really are. But the reason we're going to persevere is because we're being preserved to persevere. And that's why Jude, who understood this so clearly, says, Now unto him, unto him who is able to keep us from stumbling. Yes, we might fall for a season in life. Yes, we might find ourselves in grievous sin one time or another. None of us are going to stay there. And when you do fall into that grievous sin... Our magnificent Savior and Lord is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He's keeping us. He's keeping you. He's keeping me. He's keeping every believer, past, present, and future. That's why I love that chorus. we got to go home and see if we got it. I think if we do, it's in cassette. Can you play cassette? Can you, really? Yeah, Terry Clark. He who began a good work in you. You know it. He who began a good work in you. He will will be able able to. Yeah, he'll be able to complete it. He will be able to complete it. Oh, I love it. You know what? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. I guess our age is showing. We better be careful here. Shh. Look at this. The old. Look at this. Look at it. The old group right here. You guys never heard that. Have you heard it? Come, You guys, have you heard it? It's before Oh. I'm not much before that, am I?
1: Hey, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you know it? I think it's Steve Green. Steve Green sang it too. Oh, okay. Oh, it's just fantastic. We'll go home and see if we don't have it cassette. Any questions? Any comments? Garrett.
1: they are. You know, it's not what they are in the flesh. And just as the unregenerate man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, they cannot understand. Once we're regenerated, and he says it right here, and the seed of God within them refers like what Paul says, put on the new man. Yeah. Which in the likeness of God has been created in true righteousness. and bliss. Our spirit, by its new nature, is purely righteous and holy. It
0: cannot. Correct. Impossible. But the nature that we have is whose? Well, he gave it to us. But whose nature?
1: It's nature of God.
0: Christ. So if we have Christ's nature, by no means are we going to fall away from grace.
1: Where the people who will say that you believe your salvation. Have to make that distinction, and we don't know in the first part that distinction of who among you are truly safe. So, yeah, you're right, are truly safe, you will not fall away. That's
0: right. Um, but there are a lot of people who think that they are safe
1: and are not you know, the ones who will get there and he people say to you who
0: practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Yeah. God forbid we heard that, right?
1: But I think that's you know, that's the basis that I think people who say you salvation you have to understand
0: that person probably wasn't saved in the correct. Place. correct and and scripture teaches that first john he who says he belongs to me but does not keep my word what does he say next he's a liar and the truth's not in him Ooh. he who says he belongs to me but does not keep my word is a liar and the truth's not in him Good point. you can lose your salvation, well, where's the deity of Christ? Where's the efficacy of his crucifixion and shedding of blood? Yeah. Did you all catch that? If you deny the eternality of your salvation, then you're denying the sufficiency, the efficacy of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. What you're saying is, Lord, that wasn't good enough. Do you see the danger of the implications when you deny this magnificent doctrine? Whoo! Let me. Um, oh no! Did I do I have it in here? Let me look at something real quick. I have it. Let me just recap what I said last week. Maybe I'll do it every week to just kind of remind us of the difference, to be quite honest, between Reformed theology, Calvinist, and Arminianism. Tulip. Total depravity. Man after the fall is totally depraved or corrupted and therefore unable to do anything towards his salvation. The opposing view is that man is accountable before God to repent and believe the gospel. Therefore, he must be able to do so. <laughs> Unconditional election. T-U. God from all eternity did unconditionally elect to salvation certain ones out of the mass of sinful men. He did this not because he foresaw that they should believe the gospel when offered to them, but because of his own love and purpose to glorify himself in the salvation of those whom he chose freely by his own will unconditionally. The opposing view is that God's election is conditional that he foresaw that certain men would believe the gospel And on that basis, he chose them to be heirs of eternal life. Limited atonement. Christ, in the sacrifice of himself on the cross, bore our sins of those whom God has elected unconditionally to eternal life. Thus, he actually secured the salvation of those for whom he died. Therefore, his atonement is thus limited to them, the elect. The opposing view is that Christ sacrificed himself for every, excuse me, for each and every man to make salvation possible for them by removing every obstacle in the way of man, therefore allowing man to be a recipient of eternal life if he believes in Christ. That kills me. Irresistible grace. God's grace is irresistible in the elect those for whom Christ died. God's purpose of election and the benefits of Christ's saving work will be effectively applied to them by the Holy Spirit so that they will be regenerated and believe the gospel. The opposing view is that God's grace is resistible by all and that its reception is based not only on the work of the Holy Spirit but on the cooperation of man receiving God's grace and faith perseverance of the saints those whom God has chosen for whom Christ died who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will be preserved by God's power and will persevere in faith unto the end and be saved The opposing view is that man who truly believes the gospel may at some point or time leave off believing in Christ and therefore lose life eternal and perish eternally. It's crazy. What what do we do with people that you love and care about that are brothers and sisters in Christ that have these views? What do we do? I'll be honest, years ago, <laughs> I'd argue with them. I always loved a good argument. Ah, Never won an argument with them yet. I say in absolute pure love and gentleness, present the truth of God's word and get out of the way. The Holy Spirit doesn't need our help. remember last week I said to you in the very beginning that the Christian in the pulpit and the Christian in the pew must have a clear and concise understanding of the gospel and then I said the reason being is because the power unto salvation is the gospel The power of our arguments will be to present the truth of God's Word in love to our opposing brothers and sisters and let the Holy Spirit go to work through His Word. It's the greatest thing we can do. I'll tell you right now, go have a discussion and argument with them and they're going to leave believing what they believe and you're going to leave believing what you believe and, and there might be some tension there. Now, I want to end by saying this. Jim said something. No, Jim, no. Uh, Cornell said something magnificent in Sunday school. Were, were, were you all in Sunday school? Cornell said something that was magnificent. Every doctrine found in the Bible, there's a tension. What do I mean by that? The doctrine of faith Foreknowledge, predestination, election. There's a tension between what God has done and man's responsibility and man receiving that. I don't know if you remember my comment last Sunday in Sunday school that, that you take these doctrines and it was Charles Spurgeon. I wish I would have said it, but Charles Spurgeon said it. He said they were two railroad tracks running parallel together into heaven there's that tension I don't understand so much of the mind of God I can't because I'm, I'm, I'm inf- he's infinite and I'm finite and that's why we took a look at Isaiah 55 and we looked at Romans because we have to understand that God's ways aren't our ways but something else was said in Sunday school that I thought was magnificent and I think Cornell said it again Who are we, the clay, to question the potter? Paul said that. He said that, I believe, in Romans 9. Because he was laying out the arguments to the sovereignty of God. And Paul knew that man, in his depravity, is going to question it because he don't understand it. And so he don't understand it. He questions it and says, wait a minute. Who are you to question God? does the potter not have the power over the clay answers yes so here's what i want you to leave with tonight out, out of the sea of humanity all of us in this room tonight are believers in jesus christ secured in jesus christ because of jesus christ forever There are others in the sea of humanity that aren't, but we are. Hallelujah, amen. Fall in love with your Savior over and over again. That you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then keep reading Ephesians 1. Go from verse 3 to 4, 5, 6, and 7 and see what God did. Let's close with that. Let's just close with that. Get you home. Ephesians chapter 1. Friends, this is Paul's heart gushing out. Pay yet a praise to the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done on, on the believer's behalf. Everybody there, Ephesians chapter one. Let's make this our closing prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the believer by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace, which He made abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained, here it is, an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Josh, would you close us up in a word of prayer, please? Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai
1: Church.